0: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, mental health conditions, and child abuse that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. For centuries, doctors have maintained a high societal standing. Many see the title as a pinnacle of life achievement since reaching it requires grueling years of medical school and experiential training. But after reaching that top rung in the medical world, some are surprised to find that their life isn't one they want. In the late 1960s, Dr. Jeffrey MacDonald felt a nagging discontent with his newly established medical career. Breaking out of it, however, didn't seem like an option. At least, not if he held on to the definitive aspects of his identity. His family, for instance, relied on his continued employment. But unlike most medical professionals, who might move to a different specialization or return to school for a different degree, MacDonald had a much darker thought. To leave his old life behind, he would have to do the unforgivable. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to, do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to help Alistair by providing some medical insight into our first episode of Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, our knife-happy surgeon.
0: You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type medical murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Dr. Jeffrey MacDonald, the medical doctor and Green Beret who was eventually convicted of murdering his wife and children in 1970. Today, we'll learn about MacDonald's path to medical school, his role in the military, and the brutal murder of his family. Next week, we'll hear about the puzzling investigation, MacDonald's claims of innocence, and the cloud of controversy that haunted the family for decades. All this and more coming up, stay with us. At 4 a.m. on February seventeenth, 1970, a dozen military policemen hopped out of their jeeps and approached the house at 544 Castle Drive in North Carolina. Located on the Fort Bragg military base, the residence belonged to 26-year-old Jeffrey MacDonald, a well-liked doctor and medical officer in the Green Berets. He lived in the home with his wife and two young daughters. As the policemen approached, they didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. From the outside, the house was quiet. But just 20 minutes earlier, a strange call had begged for an ambulance to be sent to the house. The nature of the emergency remained unclear. Without notable inspection of the outer grounds, the military police knocked on the door. No one answered. So they sent a sergeant to check the back door. After several moments passed, the sergeant ran back to the front as fast as he could with grim news to report. Something horrifying had happened. Long before he was a doctor in the Green Berets, Geoffrey MacDonald grew up in a household that demanded excellence. This wasn't uncommon for Long Island families during the 1950s. The dynamic decade brought much development to the haven away from New York City, and with it came pressures for the working classes to ascend in society. But Jeffrey MacDonald felt it even more acutely, as his intimidating father never failed to voice his high expectations of his children. Though, for the most part, young MacDonald lived up to them. In high school, he excelled in every direction, he was a star athlete and served as president of the student council. He won most popular and most likely to succeed in his senior year superlatives, and he was even voted prom king. It seemed McDonald's trajectory was only ever up. To his delight, he was awarded a scholarship to attend Princeton University, where he studied pre-med. All the while, he remained closely connected with a girl named Colette Stevenson. McDonald and Stevenson had first met in eighth grade. They quickly developed crushes and began dating as they entered high school. But the initial relationship didn't last very long. The summer after freshman or sophomore year, Colette ended things. MacDonald was devastated, but soldiered on through the rest of high school, making sure to keep tabs on who Colette was dating. By the time they'd both graduated high school, Colette was single again, and MacDonald decided to give it another chance. So he reached out to Colette in the fall of his first year at Princeton and sent a letter to her dorm room at Skidmore College. Colette, as it turned out, was also eager to reconnect with her old boyfriend. Within a few weeks, Macdonald went to visit her at Skidmore and the two began dating once again. This time, there would be no awkward summertime breakup. By their sophomore year of college, they were already committed enough to occasionally discuss marriage as an eventual possibility. Then, Colette became pregnant. After some discussion, Macdonald and Colette decided to keep the baby, get married, and start a family. On September 14, 1963, 19-year-old Jeffrey Macdonald and Colette Stevenson walked down the aisle of a Catholic church and tied the knot. After a brief honeymoon in Cape Cod, the two of them moved into a house at Princeton. Colette dropped out of school while Macdonald continued his studies. Their daughter, Kimberly, was born seven months later on April 18, 1964. But that spring brought more than just a child to MacDonald's life. He completed his degree at Princeton after just three years. Only 21 years old, MacDonald let his ambitions lead him and his family to Chicago. There, he enrolled in Northwestern University Medical School with dreams of becoming a surgeon. In May of 1967, during his third year of medical school, MacDonald's family grew again when Colette gave birth to their second daughter, Kristen. The following year, after Jeffrey MacDonald graduated from Northwestern, the MacDonald family moved again, this time back to the East Coast. McDonald had been accepted into an internship program at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York City.
1: Once future doctors finish their fourth and final year of medical school, they start a year-long internship focused on medicine or surgery, where they begin working in actual healthcare settings. These internships are considered the first stage of hands-on training after graduating medical school, and they're followed by a residency program. At the conclusion of an internship, aspiring doctors are granted their MD degrees, so making it through this year is viewed as a huge milestone. Internships are different from residency programs for a couple of reasons. For instance, they only last a year, while residencies can take anywhere from 3 to 8 years. Surgery resident programs usually take longer than medicine residencies, and this is especially true if the specific surgical domain is highly specialized, like plastics, ophthalmology, or neurosurgery. Internships also involve different responsibilities than residencies. Interns will evaluate and then create treatment plans for patients, while residents will supervise this process. Resident doctors are establishing their own chosen specialties too, and this isn't the case for interns whose programs are more generic. Despite having often decided on a path to medicine or surgery, interns use this year to establish their fundamental skills required to become a licensed physician, regardless of their anticipated specialty. After interning and completing their residency, doctors may enroll in fellowship programs to further hone their specialty skills. These fellowships can take one to three years, but afterwards they're prepared to start practicing on their own.
0: Jeffrey Macdonald was checking off all the right boxes on his ladder to success. But, unfortunately, he did not enjoy his internship. At all. He was stunned by how demanding the program was, sometimes requiring him to work entire months without even a single full day off in 36-hour shifts. Macdonald barely had time to see his family, and tensions slowly simmered between him and his wife over the course of the year. But, just as he'd always done, MacDonald kept his nose to the grindstone, relegating his discontent to some future moment. His main objective became determining what aspect of surgery he wanted to specialize in. While at his internship, MacDonald
1: was initially drawn to thoracic surgery. Thoracic means related to the thorax or chest. Thoracic surgery refers to any operation in the chest, so Jeffrey McDonald would have learned how to perform several procedures involving the heart, lungs, and other structures within the chest cavity. One example would be draining pericardial effusions, which is fluid built up that accumulates between the heart and its encapsulating membrane, the pericardium. He'd also have been trained to participate in coronary bypass surgeries. He would have also been taught how to resect or remove lung tumors, along with cancerous masses on the thymus gland, which is a lymphoid organ, and located between the lungs that helps the immune system fight off infection. Additionally, he'd have been trained in repairing esophageal lesions and in the management of collapsed lungs, which involves inserting chest tubes. Besides a general interest in these vital organs within the chest and how they interrelate, Thoracic surgeons might be motivated by the financial rewards of this highly specialized surgical field. Thoracic surgeons represent a small percentage of all surgical specialties, which makes these practitioners highly sought after in hospitals.
0: MacDonald successfully distinguished himself at the Columbia Medical Center and was invited to join the hospital's thoracic surgery service. By the time his internship ended, he was well on his way towards entering a residency and becoming a licensed surgeon. In 1969, however, there was another path available for young doctors to take after finishing their internship. Given the tension in his home and the stress of the hospital workload, Jeffrey MacDonald decided to take the alternate path. He enlisted in the United States Army and prepared to serve in the Vietnam War. Against the wishes of his wife, Jeffrey MacDonald packed up his things and set off for Fort Sam Houston in Texas. It was the sabbatical he needed from a life he hadn't been wanting, and he pursued it hungrily. After finishing physician basic training, MacDonald sought out the most exciting, and often dangerous, assignments he could. To further this, he joined the US Special Forces, also known as the Green Berets. Designed to execute unconventional warfare methods, protect foreign internal defense and conduct special reconnaissance, the Green Berets enticed MacDonald. It promised him action with paratrooping, gunfights and explosives. Bored by all those years of dull lectures and unremarkable procedures, MacDonald threw himself at the Special Forces training wholeheartedly. He loved the adrenaline rush of jumping out of an airplane, pulling the ripcord and parachuting down to earth. He appreciated the camaraderie and prestige of being part of an elite unit. And he was looking forward to seeing action in Vietnam. But his dreams of war in Southeast Asia were not to be. As it turned out, signing up as a Green Beret Physician significantly lowered his chances of being deployed into battle. Instead, MacDonald was assigned to serve as a group surgeon at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Disappointing. MacDonald's wife Colette, on the other hand, was overjoyed by the turn of events. It meant that she and her children could live with her husband at his new post. The MacDonald family settled into a comfortable house on the Fort Bragg base that offered military security and good schooling for the kids. McDonald's job was relatively easy and offered him plenty of free time to spend with his family. Their new life was practically set up to foster domestic bliss for the McDonald's. But Jeffrey MacDonald was still unhappy. He didn't want to be there. He wanted to be at war. And it wouldn't be long before he did something about it. When we come back, Jeffrey McDonald betrays his life. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for
1: the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify.
0: Now, back to the story. It was the fall of 1969, and 26-year-old Jeffrey MacDonald was agitated. He joined the army hoping he could get a break from his stressful medical career and the demands of his young family. But life had thrown him a curveball. His position as a medical officer with the Green Berets had him stationed in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, making a deployment to Vietnam highly unlikely. His family, wife Colette, five-year-old daughter Kimberly, and two-year-old daughter Kristen joined him in a house on the base. Their presence would have made most fathers happy, but for McDonald, it seems to have been a reminder that he wasn't the independent outlaw or action hero he'd pictured himself as when he trained as a Green Beret. He needed a new plan. A few weeks after his family had settled on the base, McDonald approached his boss, Colonel Bob Kingston, and asked to be sent to Vietnam. Kingston was appreciative of McDonald's desire to serve and promised that if he was ever sent back into battle, He'd bring Macdonald with him, but that was a year away at the earliest. There was no real chance of Macdonald getting out of Fort Bragg before then. So, Jeffrey Macdonald tried to make the best of it. To bring some adrenaline to his free time, he worked shifts in the emergency room at a nearby hospital off the base. McDonald also threw himself into his military work with gusto, especially enjoying the regular training exercises, which also offered him the chance to leave the gates of Fort Bragg. One exercise brought him and his team to an island near Puerto Rico, where they joined a group training with Navy SEALs. In the alleged drill, the primary objective was to identify and devise plans to assassinate the leaders of a communist protest in a mock foreign country. But while the days brought rigorous lessons in tactics, the evenings offered an opportunity for MacDonald and his fellow soldiers to cut loose. This aspect of their trips was ingrained in existing military culture, but MacDonald was only beginning to get a taste of it when he was assigned the task of checking the local sex workers in Puerto Rico for disease. Presumably, those he deemed clean could then offer their services to ranking officers. Perhaps because of Jeffrey's time away from the base, the mood of the MacDonald household seemed to improve. He spent more time with his daughters when he was on the base, and his relationship with his wife warmed. By Christmas of 1969, Colette was pregnant with their third child. Apparently, giving up on his dream of going to Vietnam, McDonald made plans to move to a farm in Connecticut after his tour of duty ended the following year. He even bought a pony for his daughters, whom they named Trooper. And just as McDonald's personal life blossomed, so too did his career. He had risen to the rank of Captain. After all the tension and uncertainty of the previous two years, Macdonald and his family appeared to be stable and happy. Everything was looking up. But beneath that facade, Geoffrey Macdonald still felt a nagging sense of discontent. To nurse this, Macdonald found other ways to escape his family, like stepping out on his marriage. MacDonald had likely never been fully faithful to his wife. Throughout their marriage, he'd had affairs with several women. This included one in 1964 after his first child had been born and one that reportedly lasted throughout his time in medical school. And the philandering didn't end there. Those overseas excursions away from Fort Bragg provided the perfect setting for one-night stands. And by the end of 1969, McDonald had even struck up a relationship with an old high school girlfriend. Though his wife was pregnant, he allegedly had plans to see his old flame in the spring. And it seems Colette was aware. It couldn't have been easy for her. She bore Jeffrey's children and went along with his ambitious career pursuits for years. Now carrying his third child, Colette too was reaching a breaking point in their marriage. Perhaps picking up on his wife's disappointment, MacDonald began taking Escatrol, which it seems he had easy access to.
1: Escotrol was an amphetamine stimulant often prescribed to suppress appetite and help patients lose weight prior to 1981. Despite the market appeal prior to its recall, the FDA placed harsher restrictions on amphetamine treatments in an attempt to curb abuse. These regulations limited this family of medicines to only be used for narcolepsy, hyperactivity, and as a temporary appetite suppressant for patients meeting the criteria for obesity. Escotrol was actually composed of two different products, dexedrine, which is a stimulant, and compazine, which has a sedating anti-nausea effect and helps calm the stimulant. Some side effects included rapid heart rate, headache, upset stomach, insomnia, weight loss, mania, and euphoria. Eventually, it was recalled because it failed to prove therapeutic effectiveness by FDA standards. Today we have smarter drugs that more effectively target neurotransmitter receptors linked to sleep disorders, hyperactivity, and appetite suppression. Even though escatrol may have helped with some of these issues back then, it was highly addictive, potentially dangerous, and just a second-rate precursor drug to the more advanced stimulants we have today.
0: McDonald claimed he was taking escatrol in order to drop weight for the army base's boxing team, which he'd just joined. His newfound commitment to the Army's boxing team would also give him another opportunity to get away from the base. In the spring of 1970, he planned to travel with the team to Russia for a month long tournament. That excursion would never happen. Monday, February 16th, 1970, was a normal day for the McDonald family. At six in the morning, Dr. McDonald returned home from a shift at the Hamlet Hospital emergency room and changed into his military uniform. Despite having just finished a 24 hour shift, McDonald was ready for a full day of work on the base.
1: Working very long shifts, adjusting to disrupted sleep schedules and dealing with repeated periods of sleep deprivation are all part of being a doctor in training in a hospital. One trick is to sleep whenever and wherever you can, even if it's just taking a little power nap. Unfortunately, you need to limit socialization in favor of rest and limit your exposure to recreational drugs and alcohol. Caffeine can also be helpful, but know your limits because it can absolutely make sleeping more difficult. Sleep deprivation is a killer for any type of extended shift work and its consequences affect health as well as job performance. Doctors in training need to develop coping skills to succeed. After a grueling and sleepless 36-hour shift, I was sitting at a patient's bedside listening to her heart and actually fell asleep in the middle of this examination. Over time, bad sleep hygiene can lead to things like an increased risk for stroke, high blood pressure, a weakened immune system, diabetes, and depression. It also hinders memory and concentration, increases irritability, and makes people more prone to car and work accidents. McDonald was unfortunately facing a struggle with rest and being overworked, a problem all young doctors know well.
0: Despite the lack of sleep, MacDonald was still fresh and alert when he got back to work on the base, perhaps with a little help of an escatrol pill. Examining his agenda for that Monday morning, MacDonald was unfazed. His responsibilities included filling out a monthly report on venereal diseases and overseeing sanitation for the mess hall and latrines. After work, MacDonald returned home and took his daughters to feed their pony, Trooper, before dinner. In the evening, Macdonald put the girls to bed while Colette left the house to attend a university night class. Macdonald fell asleep in front of the TV as he waited for his wife to return. After her class, Colette gave her friend a lift home, then picked up a bottle of milk from the grocery store. She arrived back at the house just before 10pm. According to McDonald he and Colette watched The Tonight Show before she retired to bed just after midnight But McDonald didn't join her Though he'd worked over 30 hours in the past two days he allegedly wasn't quite tired yet So he stayed up doing the dishes and reading from a mystery paperback Two hours later was finally ready to sleep when he stepped into his bedroom mcdonald discovered that his younger daughter kristen was sleeping on his side of the mattress and had wet the bed according to mcdonald he decided not to clean the sheets or mattress in order to avoid waking up his wife instead he carried kristen back to her own bed then took a blanket and returned to the living room. A little after 2 a.m., McDonald laid on the couch and finally fell asleep. Or so he claimed. At 3.40 a.m., a call came into the local telephone operator in Fayetteville. A weak-sounding voice on the other end asked for an ambulance and military police to be sent. The operator heard what sounded like the phone being dropped and no answers to their questions. Unsure what to do, the operator transferred the call to a desk sergeant at Fort Bragg. When the sergeant picked up the phone, the man on the other end spoke again. His voice was barely above a whisper as he begged for help and gave his address. He said there'd been a stabbing. When we come back, the police discover the horrific scene inside Jeffrey McDonald's home and the investigation begins. Now, back to the story. Twenty-six-year-old Jeffrey McDonald seemed to have his life figured out. As a medical doctor, he had a good career path in front of him. At home, he was happily married to his childhood sweetheart, Colette McDonald, and was raising two precocious young daughters, five-year-old Kimberly and two-year-old Kristen. And when his military service in Fort Bragg, North Carolina ended, McDonald planned to move his family up to a farm in Connecticut. His life appeared idyllic But his alleged drug use, extramarital affairs, and compulsion for escape Painted a much darker picture Even still, it paled in contrast to the grim scene authorities discovered On the morning of February 17, 1970 When military police arrived at the McDonald House they didn't know what to expect, but a step inside the back door revealed a bloody altercation. Inside the master bedroom, the police found five months pregnant Colette MacDonald lying on the floor beside the bed, covered in blood. She was dead, her arms broken, her skull fractured, her head and body covered in stab wounds. Jeffrey MacDonald was lying motionless beside her, his arm wrapped around her. He too had been stabbed multiple times, but he was alive. In addition to the carnage, the officers also spotted a small paring knife left on the rug. There was also a single word written in blood on the headboard of the MacDonald's bed Pig. As he heard the policeman approach, MacDonald woke up. He begged the police to check on his daughters and told them he couldn't breathe as he lost consciousness again. One of the police officers began giving MacDonald mouth-to-mouth resuscitation as the others went down the hall. Inside the daughters' rooms, they discovered the bodies of Kimberly and Kristen. They had both been killed in a similar manner to their mother, beaten and stabbed to death. Meanwhile, McDonald had regained consciousness and attempted to speak as the police officers tried to treat him, demanding to see his children. But the officers, more focused on loading him into an ambulance, didn't let him. The officers quickly got McDonald out of the house and took him to the army hospital. He seemed to be seriously wounded with stab wounds in his stomach and chest along with a collapsed lung. But at the hospital, the doctors realized that McDonald's stab wounds were superficial.
1: He didn't even need stitching. Despite how serious they must have looked, Alistair, McDonald's stab wounds weren't really actually life-threatening if they were treated properly. Superficial stab wounds are classified medically as cuts or punctures that don't penetrate into muscle or any internal bodily structures beyond. In this way, a wound is seen as superficial due to how deep it is and where it's located on the body. The injuries on McDonald's chest and stomach would have only affected his skin and fat layers, missing his musculature and deeper structures. For adult males, the torso and midsection are relatively optimal places to sustain a knife wound, because that's where they generally store most of their fat. However, I'm not saying injuries here are negligible, and the depth of a wound is crucial in this equation. Most of our vital organs are housed in our chest and abdominal regions, so if MacDonald was actually stabbed by people who were really trying to kill him, he got extraordinarily lucky with the outcome.
0: As the doctors treated his wounds, MacDonald continued to rant about the attack. He claimed that he'd woken up in the middle of the night to the sounds of his wife and daughters screaming. Standing above him were four people, three men and a woman, all wearing what McDonald described as hippie style clothing. When McDonald tried to fight the intruders, one of the men hit McDonald over the head with a baseball bat, while another stabbed him with an ice pick. The woman held a candle and egged the men on. They chanted, Acid is Groovy, and Kill the Pigs, as they beat McDonald to the point of unconsciousness. When he woke up, McDonald claimed, the attackers were gone. He stumbled down the hallway to each of his daughter's rooms where he said he tried to perform CPR to save them. Then he went into the master bedroom and found the body of his wife. MacDonald made sure to emphasize one specific detail. He claimed he'd pulled the knife out of his wife's chest and thrown it to the floor. MacDonald wanted to make sure the police knew that he did that perhaps because it would explain any of his fingerprints on the knife. More concerned about his emotional state than his physical one, the doctors gave McDonald a tranquilizer and let him rest. When the doctors checked McDonald at 7.30am, they found that his collapsed lung was getting worse. The percent of impairment had gone from 20 to 40%.
1: A pneumothorax, or a collapsed lung, is caused when air leaks from the lung into the area between the lungs and the chest wall, known as a pleural cavity. This leaked air then puts pressure on the lungs so it can't expand. Causes include penetrating or blunt injuries to the chest and ruptured air blisters called blebs that can form atop the lungs. When these blebs burst, air can seep into the pleural cavity, which again prohibits lung expansion. Lung conditions like emphysema, pneumonia, and cystic fibrosis can also damage lung tissue, making a collapse more likely. There's even a risk of pneumothorax for patients on ventilators, as these machines can sometimes malfunction and create dangerous air pressures that get forced into the lungs. Common symptoms are usually sharp and extreme pain associated with breathing, a dry-sounding cough, shortness of breath, rapid heart rate, and hypoxemia, which is a low blood oxygen level. Without intervention, a collapsed lung can cause fatal breathing complications, and if lung impairment reaches 25% or higher, a chest tube needs to be inserted between the ribs to vacuum excess air from the pleural cavity. This allows the lung to re-expand. While they can be very serious, smaller lung collapses can heal on their own. The doctors inserted a tube
0: into McDonald's chest to stay safe and let the lung heal on its own. By the following afternoon, the story of the brutal murders had hit the papers. Jeffrey MacDonald's claims that a hippie cult had killed his family were reported as the most likely scenario. It had only been six months since the infamous and widely publicized Manson murders. As a result, MacDonald's tales of murderous hippies were both believable and frightening, especially the image of his slaughtered wife. Like Manson victim Sharon Tate, Colette was young, blonde, and pregnant when she died. Working together, the FBI, military police, and local law enforcement began to set up an extensive manhunt to find the killers. The U.S. Army Criminal Investigations Division took the lead in examining the scene of the crime, spending five days combing the property. Early on, they found the presumed murder weapons. A second paring knife, a club, and an ice pick. They'd been left in the backyard. Yet surprisingly, for how messy the scene had been, none had any fingerprints on them. It seemed they'd been wiped of evidence. Inside the house, detectives found splinters from the club in the daughter's room and the master bedroom but none in the living room where Macdonald had supposedly fought for his life against the hippies. Other strange details began to pop up. Despite the fact that the bedrooms were covered in blood, there was very little blood found in the living room where Macdonald claimed he'd been stabbed. There was also no blood in the hallway where he said he'd crawled afterwards, nor on either of the two telephones that McDonald had used to call for help. None of the neighbors in nearby houses remembered with perfect clarity whether they had heard signs of a violent home invasion coming from the McDonald home during the time of the murders. The word pig on the headboard was written by someone with a steady hand, likely wearing gloves it was much less likely that angry hippies had scrawled it out in the midst of a drug-induced stupor. To the investigators, the inconsistencies between McDonald's story and the crime scene were growing more suspicious by the hour. On February 23rd, six days after the murders, the Provost Marshal overseeing the investigation at Fort Bragg quietly told the FBI that they could stop the manhunt for the hippie cultists. The investigators were now beginning to suspect that Jeffrey McDonald, the seemingly perfect all-American doctor, had killed his entire family. Meanwhile, McDonald bided his time with his recovering lung perhaps thinking that some nobody would soon be caught for the murder. The news still hadn't reached him that he was the primary suspect. Next time on Medical Murders, the army investigators turn their attention to their new prime suspect, Jeffrey MacDonald. MacDonald, meanwhile, fights to maintain his innocence as the case becomes a national news story. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Jeffrey MacDonald, among the many sources we used, we found Fatal Vision by Joe McGuinness and A Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Spotify originals from ParCast, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Trikvedotir, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.